I'm so glad to see that you're feeling better. You had a very close call. But you're gonna be all right. Now, just lie still. I'm gonna give you something. It's gonna make you feel even better. This is our episode on ASMR. I love shrimp chips. Hold it's on. It's just Dick Fetty. Oh, this is my last this is my last chip. Really get it in there. Alright. Make it painful. This is, you better leave that in. This is definitely how we're starting the episode. You got it, fam. Welcome to the Dick, Bearded Dick's Musical Fun Time. I'm the beard. I'm the dick. Uh, this week we're going to switch it up a little bit. We're not going to start with Dick Fetty's Disco Box. We're going to start with Beardo Ben's Worst and Best Buys. What do you want first, the good or the bad and ugly? I want the good. Alright, well, the good um, is probably not much of a surprise considering my love of horror and considering I haven't been doing much but playing video games recently, um, other than taking care of a small baby. Baby! But I have been playing the Evil or Evil Dead. Wow! I've been playing the Resident Evil 2 remake. Oh! Yes. And I'm, you know, I'm sure if you're a video game enthusiast, and you've played the original. I'm not going to go too much into like the original. I'm really going to focus on the things that make this one different and good. Sure, sure. I'm a huge fan of the original. If you haven't played the original, play it. But you do not need to play the original to play the remake. Okay. Um, it's going to be hard to play it anyway. Need a PlayStation. Eh, you, you can get a hold of it, I'm sure, somehow. Emu emulators and, and such. But uh, have you played the original Resident Evil 2? Yeah, it was the first. It's one of the only Resident Evil games I ever played. I had the I had an extra large T-shirt with the zombie poking out from behind the door frame. That was like the coolest thing. I was, I don't know, eleven or twelve. It okay. was humongous. It's All like right, a dress. Perfect. Love so it. love it. Um, I love Resident Evil. Uh, everything, uh, from four and before that, uh, everything else. Kind of sucked until Seven came out, and they kind of revamped everything and sure. made it more about horror again. And then they announced the remake to the second one. Um, I, I just started playing it. I'm mostly done Leon's story, and I have to say they they did they did do a good job of updating quite a bit quite a few things it's kind of more so plays like resident evil 4 with like the over the shoulder camera there's no more tank controls which i'm happy about but at the same time i do have a love in my heart for the tank controls of the originals because it did kind of add to that fear factor that you can't control your body super well no yeah and by tank controls it's like the controls aren't necessarily super responsive, and your character moves in a way that is not intuitive and is like, you're basically kind of on a grid, but you're just, it, it's imagine like piloting a tank. Like exactly. that's, yeah, it's, it's fucking brutal. So they, they got rid of that. They got rid of the fixed camera angles, albeit I've seen mods with the fixed camera angles. Really? Yeah. And I think it'd be cool to play like that. Uh, my one thing is that it kind of does take away from those somewhat those original first sightings of a few things yeah um like the liquor when he runs past the window yeah like you don't see that at least i didn't maybe i didn't like look in the right direction at the time because like you have full control of camera and everything yeah. so so you can just miss everything stare at the floor yeah and correct me if i'm wrong but there is a scene in the original resident evil 2 where you go into a uh, interrogation room and one of the zombie dogs comes through the window right I think so, but it's been a long time. It's been a long time for me, too. But I, I've been to that room in the remake, and it, the window's already broken out. Just to make sure, like, because you have a map, so, you know, I was like, I'm going to go into the other side of the window, so maybe it triggers if you're not 
yeah. on that side, but um, they it it really brings back the horror aspect of Resident Evil, which I very much enjoyed. And there there are points that are very scary in the game. Um, there, it's a lot darker than I remember the original being. Sure. Most of the game is shrouded in darkness, and you're walking around with a flashlight, and you know it, it's it's just different than like a lot of like old survival horror games now. Um, it really harkens back to that original survival horror of, you know, yeah, they're slow zombies, but like they're they can fuck you up pretty bad. Yeah. One of the major differences I've seen is uh, zombies don't immediately go down with a headshot. And their reach is a lot better, it seems, than this. And, like, the originals, like, the one and two, it was much easier to just kind of, like, duke out a zombie. But sure. now if you want to duke out a zombie, you have to, like, fire at least a couple shots. That usually, you want to go for, like, the kneecap. You can go for the head, but it usually takes two or three shots to down them non-permanently. Okay. Uh, my main thing that I love about the remake, which they changed, was the Tyrant, or, like, Mr. X. So, in the original, they were scripted. You know, you'd show up someplace and he'd show up there. In this, the first time you encounter him, he is pursuing you. That is it. He is coming after you constantly. While well, I thought that... Now, this is the thing that I, I heard a little bit about this aspect of it. From what I remember, I didn't think the time really showed up until the second playthrough. I can't remember, honestly. Because I feel like, I think he shows up here and there, especially later game in the first playthrough, but it was like, in the second playthrough, he showed up in scripted sequences, but you didn't expect it because you've already beaten the game and he was never there, and it scares the fucking bejesus out of I you. I think you're right. Because you go and like complete some puzzle, and as you're walking th through the room to go back the door you came in, an arm bursts through and he grabs you and you just like piss your fucking pants, especially when you're 11 years yeah. old, and it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And the thing is, in this, he can follow you everywhere, and I, I really want to have a chance to be able to play so the game with headphones. So is it basically Clock Tower with guns? Sort of, actually, yeah. But there's constant threat. Yeah. So you're not just, like, kind of walking around in silence for a while and building that. Um, sure, sure. But yeah, it, there, there are lickers, there's zombies, there's dogs, there's crows, there's spooters, there's a uh, giant alligator. Yeah. So... But the the thing they do really cool with Mr. X is that he, while you're still in the police station, and I know he comes back later, but I, I, I am just at the part where you leave the police station and you're underground and uh, you switch over to Ada Wong. Okay. So after you first encounter him, he's walking around the police station constantly and you always hear footsteps. Yeah. Always. And it kind of adds to that because, you know, in the old games, like, there was fixed camera angles, so you can't always, like, when you're running away, you can't always see what's coming behind you. And if you do that, boom, you're getting tackled by a zombie. And then right. even if you survive that zombie attack, he's there to fucking punch you right in the skull. Yeah. Um, and it, it does a very good job of building that horror that I felt when I originally played the first game. There was a, a part I played recently where... Um, I was very low on ammo, and I had to go from... I, I was just about to leave the police station, and you have to go from, like, one end through the parking lot to get out of the parking lot. And that area is where all the zombie dogs are, and they're very quick. Yeah. So I was very low on ammo, and, dude, I'm spending round after round after round, because I already died once, and I was like, I'm not doing this again. I want to get through this. So I'm like wildly shooting, which is not something you do in the original Resident Evil yeah. games. But they, they do a very good job. The puzzles are very good. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Resident Evil 7. I mean, I love 1 and 2, but, like, 7 resonated with me, and I, like, I... It's one of the few games that's come out so recently that I've already played through a few times. But this game really does do a very good job of hearkening back to the original Resident Evil and gives me a lot of hope for Capcom as a gaming company and like what they're going to do with their IPs now. Sure. The new Devil May Cry looks phenomenal, but this game really plays very cleanly. My main thing is, like they kind of did with the remake of 1, which originally came out for the GameCube, and you can get it for PS4, 
it's that, that that remake is beautiful, especially for one that's so much older. Yeah, and it still holds up very well. Well, I think it was only a year. I think they like pumped out the second game in a year. Yeah, it was. They were pretty close together. Yeah, that was back when they really. But the 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 remake of the first one, they added this whole storyline with this. I can't remember the character's name off the top of my head, but this like girl who went through all this strife with her parents, and I think her dad was one of the scientists for. I might be. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but her father, I believe, worked for Umbrella, and like they ended up experimenting on this girl, and she ended up killing her father, and like all this other stuff. And it was like this nice little nuance that like they kind of added to the original storyline that didn't completely go over. Didn't change the, the it, yeah. It didn't change canon, the, but it just yeah. Sorta... They added like a slightly new area for her and everything, and like yeah. really unpacked it. But um, all that's like my only thing. And even then, like the game stands alone, especially for people who've never played the second one. Sure, it's it's a it's a great game. Yeah, I and mean, you can blow through it. It it's about, if you know what you're doing, and you know where stuff is. Especially, you can blow through that game in about four hours. Like, just one of the storylines. Yeah. And all of the DLC is free. Awesome. Except, I I think the costumes are paid. There might be one or two paid DLCs. I think it's one. But, like, as soon as I loaded up the game, it, it gave me a bunch of free, like, side missions. The tofu stuff comes back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and I have, you have to beat the game first to do that, but... Um, I know that's in there. There was like it's. Let me just stop you and say I had a Game Shark for my PlayStation, so I was able to access all that stuff because it was like mind-boggling to me as a kid that one could do the things necessary for a lot of that. But it was like with the Game Shark, you could start with the grenade launcher, you could start with the Desert Eagle, you could start with the fucking automatic pistol, you could like do all sorts of shit, which is mostly like I just started with extra guns for fun. Yeah. But yeah. I do remember the tofu stuff. I remember reading about it in GamePro probably originally and being like, what? Yeah, that was back when Japanese horror always had that like Goof. weird goofiness to yeah. it. Especially like in Silent Hill where they have the ending where you find out that everything's being ran by Ashina Ibu. Yeah. So um, there was one other thing. One thing I always love about this game is how your main gun just gets bigger and bulkier mm. as you go through because you find upgrades for it. But um, there there are sides. The the DLC I know kind of unpacks a little bit more some of the character stuff that like you run into. Like there's this gentleman you run into with his daughter who's infected, and there's one other thing. I haven't played those yet, so I'm not going to comment on them. And and if they do kind of enlarge on the story as a whole, from what I understand, they don't really like. They could have been done a little bit better, but Oh no! I think the game is really good. Yeah, it looks beautiful, uh, and it does really d- build terror. And like, I, I am kind of sick of a lot of like what are referred to as the walking simulators of, of horror games nowadays, where you know you can't really fight back. And this, you can fight back, but it's it can very quickly turn against you. Yeah, which I like. Yeah, no, I mean this was these. You know, Resident Evil 1 and 2, along with the original Silent Hill, are like the basically forerunners of all survival horror after that. And then, you know, it's like Amnesia did something fresh and then it was no longer fresh. And then you've got like your crafting horror games and, you know, all the things it's turned into. But the the whole, they like Resident Evil 2 was basically like, the first one was groundbreaking, but the second one was like a refinement in every way possible. Like I've never... Granted, I've never played the first game, but, like, the second one was, like, awesome even as a kid. And fucking terrifying. And it's it's so, I think, holds up as a good game because it was very deliberately paced. And, like you said, you can blow through it if you want, but you can also not. It's not like there's a ton of world to dig into in some ways, although there are a lot of notes and everything and plot stuff to reveal. But it's just, like, a really well-placed game that, you know... in, in funny talking about now like in does have these echoes of like the original clock tower but um yeah because there's there's points because you can get these boards you can block off windows so like more zombies don't come in so there can be points where there's huge swaths if you actually spend the ammo to because you can't kill the zombies fully like put them down for good their heads will explode and whatnot where like you'll just be running through and 
there won't be a zombie, but like maybe you put up those boards and you forgot that, you know, that's one of the windows that zombies can come through and you'll be running by and all of a sudden you'll hear one of them kind of like oh, at you and it'll scare you and kind of like break out of a little bit. Yeah. And then there, <laughs> uh, a buddy of ours, Tom was over and he, he has the game, but he also bought Kingdom Hearts 3 at the same time. So he's just been playing through Kingdom Hearts 3, hasn't gotten to it yet. Yay. And, uh, <laughs> so... He, uh, I let him play a little bit, uh, on my save file, and, um, he, he made it back to a point, and I was like, don't worry about this area, like, it's, it's good, like, you shouldn't really run into anything. I killed everything in this sector. And he's like, oh, alright, and he runs in and immediately gets taken out by a liquor, and I was like, huh, well, guess I was wrong. <laughs> but yeah, the, the game, it's, like you said, it's paced very well. Yeah. Um, it's done very well. You don't need to play the first Resident Evil to understand it. It's It stands alone, but if you have played the first Resident Evil, there are nods to it. Yeah. Umbrella's bad. And, uh, what? J Jill's looking for a brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jill's and looking for a brother. So and it's Chris, no. Leon. Leon. Leon! Yeah, Leon Kennedy. Just, yeah. And then uh, Ada Wong, who is so hot. I don't know why she's wearing a red sequin red... dress. Well, this is I think it's sequin in the. Is it? Oh, it kind of looked like sequin, but yeah. I, I don't know why she's wearing a sexy red dress. She's going to a fancy dinner party. Yeah, I mean, when, when you get to Ada Wong, that's really when like things get like real ridiculous because then you have this. She's like try time to pull out the secret gadgets, and you have this like gun that can apparently hack things and make levers move when you're not even touching them. Yeah. It's called science. <laughs> yeah. But the the game the game is is great. It it's a really good reimagining of the first one. Well, not even it's a it's a remake. It's yeah. but almost like a shot for shot remake outside yeah. of like certain gameplay aspects. Um, the ink ribbons are not in there unless you play on hardcore mode. If you play on hardcore mode, then you can then, then it's mandatory. Your saves. Yeah, where you have to find ink ribbons and stuff. Which, me personally, I'm not. I'm not the type of person who likes to play under those stressful conditions. Like, yeah. I like. A I would hard, have to do that. So. I, I I like a hard game, but like, I I have very little time to play video games nowadays, and I have even before we had the baby. But, I just want to sit down and enjoy it, and I want to explore and ex bring me back to that spot of like true unadulterated horror when I was probably much too young to be playing that game yeah well it's funny because i was just talking with my buddy tim and callie about um what was it called mimic or what was the game no the one with the mimics prey i was talking yeah. about him with prey and i was saying how i was disappointed because by the end of the game the challenge is like non-existent and he was like yeah like i don't care about that in a game like that i'm like really invested in the world so i don't want to have everything be so hard because i want to be able to like do stuff and not constantly have to stress about whether or not i'm going to get murdered and i hear that but it's like from my perspective i'd much rather have like it, it's only rewarding to explore the world if i'm constantly afraid i'm gonna die and maybe i take that from system shock too where like by the end it's like insanely hard and you know but you're still fighting everything off with your giant i alien space toothpick thing but uh um, well you know the the game itself you know it's still challenging it's just i don't need to also think nine steps ahead to like be like oh maybe i should save now yeah because there are very much times where you can all of a sudden boom you're you're dead and you didn't realize it was going to happen yeah but that's survival horror for you so i guess well that's right i mean and but, that that to me is like the kind of gamble i want to take like that's where computer games always have the downfall of most of the time they don't have limited save systems and if you can quick save in a game it takes out all the challenge i probably will play it on hardcore mode but like it's Not my first yeah. it's my first playthrough like i want to really yourself. like get back to that world and sure i want to have a leisurely stroll through horrific things happening god i want to have sex with ada wong anyway um i definitely recommend the game sure as far as best buys go it is it is full price but um Definitely, definitely check it out. Uh, everyone I've spoken to who's played, like, the, I guess the, like, the big two recent releases, Kingdom Hearts 3 and Resident Evil 2 Remake, I'd say go with Resident Evil 2. Um, unless you want a really easy storyline and, and playability, because I hear that Kingdom Hearts 3 is easy as fuck. Hmm. 
and they give you a little too much ability to do too many things, but that's my best buy. Okay. Are you ready for my bad buy? Yes. So, you remember that movie we watched with Jake Gyllenhaal that was very good called Nightcrawler? And how that movie was, like, really good and well done and well shot? So, that director slash writer, Dan Gilroy, he made another movie. He made a movie for Netflix with Jake Gyllenhaal. So far, you're like, okay. I'm on board. This sounds okay, right? And it's a horror movie. And it's about art. Okay, cool. Yeah. I get behind that. The movie's called Velvet Buzzsaw, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's horrible. No, no, no. I think you're wrong. Nope, nope. Terrible fucking movie. Okay. Even though it's got, like, a lot of really good people in it. Rene Russo's in it. Uh, Tony Collette is in it. Uh, Natalie Dyer, who is uh, What's-Her-Nuts on um, Stranger Things. Okay. And it's got John Malkovich in it. So, like, you're like, yeah, this could be a, a good movie. Um, I loved Jake Gyllenhaal's character in it. Now, mind you, we're, I'm going to spoil this whole movie for anyone listening, like I always do with my yeah. bad buys. But now, is this better than Bird Box or worse? I actually enjoyed Bird Box more. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So. Because. Fair enough. Review over. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking high art. This was way more ham-fisted than Bird Box, believe it or not. Okay. Because, like, it it starts off like it could be a good movie. It almost gave me very, um, Oculus vibes, where it was like, you know, haunted objects. Okay. So, the movie is about Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays this art critic, who's like the end-all to be-all of art critics. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, he's bi, I guess, or he was gay, it doesn't matter. He's... Uh, not one sexuality in the movie. And he becomes obsessed with this girl who works for an art dealer that he's friends with. And they start fucking. And she finds... Some guy dies in her building and she finds all of these paintings in there. So she grabs them and everyone who looks at them like becomes obsessed with them and like gets a little crazy about them and everything. Like Tomei? Sort of. Yeah, but, like, right now, it seems like it could have this, like, really good... Could be cool. Yeah, it could be cool. It could have been cool. That didn't happen. Okay. So, you... Everyone who makes money off of these paintings, because mm-hmm. in this guy's will, he stated that he wanted all of the paintings burned okay. and destroyed, but this girl steals them anyway... And they sell them, and they're taking the art world by storm, and everyone's obsessed with them and gets all these emotions and feelings when they look at them, and um, the paintings start killing people. Fine. Okay. Okay. Great. They don't just kill people. They they have the ability to possess other paintings and other artwork to kill people, which doesn't make any fucking sense. I'm just looking at a picture of this, of this movie. This just looks bad. Yeah. This looks very bad. Yeah, the acting was good, but, like, it it was so poorly executed. So, they, like, some people start dying under mysterious circumstances, and no one's, like, really too worried about it. Mm-hmm. There's like, oh, man, that sucks. That guy died. That guy hung himself. Oh, man. So they find out that this guy put blood possibly his own into the paintings and apparently like they really ham fist this in there that this guy like killed killed a couple people and like or killed i think he killed his parents in it and he like was in a a mental ward and then after he got out of the mental ward and and stuff he secluded himself and became this painter and it's so poorly stuck into the movie now i don't need exposition about why the haunting is happening. I love Oculus. There is no real explanation as to why this mirror is killing people. Yeah. There's none. It's just like uh-huh. this mirror... Yeah. Ha uh-huh. ha, kill yourself! This mirror, mirror, the mirror just kills people, right? Yeah. Light bulbs taste great. Uh-huh. Like, if, if they didn't explain, like, they don't even... Like, even if they just mentioned, like, oh yeah, his blood was in the bannings, that was weird. Like, that's what he used to make his, like, dark blacks and stuff. Mm-hmm. That would have been fine. But they just had to ham-fist the fact that his art was possessed by his own spirit, and but you're like, what? Like, it doesn't make sense. Why? Like, yeah. he didn't die violently. Like, he just died of a heart attack. Like, it doesn't 
follow any of like the classic haunting tropes, which is fine, but like it it doesn't work at all. Yeah. And the the death scenes aren't even all that great. Like they're really not. And it it just it it doesn't make any fucking sense. It's like they were like do you, Netflix they were like, Hey, do you wanna make um a movie? You wanna make a horror movie for us? We're Netflix, what's up? We make tons of money and he was like, Yeah, sure and then like called up Jake Joan Hall was like, Yo dude, you wanna be in a movie that I'm making? Still handsome as hell, he's yeah. still ripped hot and body. It, it's just like it's so poorly executed. Do not watch it. And everybody dies. Big surprise. And the whole movie... So, the the title, first of all, where they get the title... Wait for this, Dick Fetty, wait for this. Where they get the title is the, art, the female art dealer. Mm-hmm. The name of her punk band in the 80s was Velvet Buzzsaw, which don't know why that has to do with the title of the yeah. fucking movie. Uh, they overly mention it a little too much as if people care that she was in a punk band in the 80s, which never made it or sold records, I guess. Anyway, the big reveal, so she, like, figures out that um, he... She sucked this dude's dick back in the 80s? No, that these his paintings can possess other art to kill people, which, also, poor decision, like... It's like a 90s horror movie. Like, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, like, the one of the last scenes is she, like, gets rid of all the art in her house because, like, Jake Gyllenhaal figures out that... that um, Art kills. Yeah, that, like, like, the art can kill people. And... But then what constitutes art? But she's got a tattoo of a buzzsaw on, the, on, her, on her shoulder, right? You see where this is going? It says Velvet Buzzsaw. And, like, last scene in the movie, it starts to spin and cuts off her head. It's not the last scene in the movie, but I think, like, the I last... I it was. The last scene is, like, some street vendor uh, found, like, a piece of the art and, like, put it on a stuff, like, up, and somebody, you know, like... What was that fucking video we watched um, about the New York borough uh, on YouTube? That was really funny. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the Williamsburg thing? Yeah, it was very Williams. Yeah, it's very, like, this very Williamsburg couple, like, walks up to the street vendors, like, oh my god, it's beautiful, how much for it? And the guy's like, I don't know, like, five dollars. And they buy it, and then, like, it zooms out, and you're like, the art is still there. It was, like, they could have done so much better with it, like, anything, literally anything. Like, even if the art just killed him, like, he was channeling something else, and, like, to create this art, and it ended up killing him. And he had nothing to do with killing everybody else, and the art itself killed him, or killed people, like, just the art itself. Because the art itself was in all of these rooms. I don't know why it needed to... Like, a man gets killed by a painting of monkeys fixing a car. I want that silence in there. I want people to realize how angry I am about this movie. I yeah. wasted... Well, who who paints a painting about monkeys fixing a car? Like, to be fair, that's pretty awesome. Art is stupid. And, like, that's the other sad part. Is like, a lot of the... Whoever... I don't know who did the art for... The, the the demon art in the movie, but it's it's good. It's it's cool. It's fun to look at. It's very like evil looking and shit. But with all of these age old stories about like cursed art and shit, like it how was did they fuck it up so bad. Yeah, how how can you fuck this up so bad? And the thing is, is like a lot of the characters were like visceral and like real. And, like they seemed like really dickish people who would be in the art world. Yeah. And, like, what it's like to be in the art world. And that was done really well. And watching Jake Gyllenhaal come, come unhinged, which might just be a testament to his acting, was done really well. And I love a lot of Jake Gyllenhaal movies. But yeah, this sure. was fucking garbage. Yeah. So that's my bad bye. Okay. Fair enough. So we're going to, you know, as, as we said, we, we're switching it up and... Tonight I'm going to do a very, very brief Disco Box recommendation, but it's in line with the larger topic I want to talk about, which is still music-related. Uh, this past weekend I played uh, with Concrete, or as Concrete Mascara, at the Industrial Actions uh, Festival in Oakland, California. Wait, you're the Concrete Mascara? It's true. Identity revealed. I am the Clark Kent of this podcast. More like the Clark cunt. <laughs> I was going to say it. You beat me to it. Ah. 
Um, but yeah, so I want to talk about it because I can basically give recommendations out of that and hopefully the audience who's generally into all this noise crap anyways will care. And if not, then I guess turn off, but give us five stars when you do it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so my disco box recommendation is Control's album from 2006 called World of Lies, which was released on CD and LP on Freak Animal Records. For those who don't know Control, he's a parallax artist from uh, Santa Barbara, Santa Monica, Santa something, and um, Santa Claus. Santa Claus. It is Santa Cruz. That was the one. There's a lot of Santas in um, California. It's Christmas land. But anyway, I got this record from Sarvi Levitt in Lofty, which is Miko Aspa's record shop, the first trip I took to Finland. And I was familiar with Control, and at the time, like, a lot of his older records still commanded a higher price, so I spent a lot of money on this LP. He had, like, an original copy of it uh, from when he released it 10 years before that, or 13 years before that, whatever it was, or maybe, I guess it was, like, six. It was expensive. You can now get it for a really reasonable price, but... It's a really good record. A lot of, Control's whole thing is basically he does this like super thick power electronics which have these like commanding but heavily affected vocals over like surging synth stuff basically. So it's very far removed in many ways from the uh, more fit like the Finnish style of like harsh piercing feedback and noisier stuff. It's more of like a Euro electronics German thing but much heavier than that much more brash in a lot of ways and control has like continued on since then i have not stayed up with his albums i think this is uh as far as when it was released maybe the latest control album i have i've heard some of the other ones but oh no that's not true i have deadly sins from 2010 which was the the album after this but he's done a bunch more for anson that i haven't heard that are supposed to be pretty solid too Anyways, it's just, it's a really good one. It's nice because his vocals aren't quite as buried on this one. The, the elements of the songs are much more separated. Miko was telling me he was pushing Thomas to sort of give him something slightly different than what he was doing at the time of these like deeply submerged recordings that were so um, hard to discern. Part of why I recommend it is that Control played the first night of the festival and specifically he played the second song from the album called Force It to End, which is one of my favorite Control songs I've heard from this period and before. Uh, and it starts with this like sample and it's like, what was it like? Like, what was it like to kill him or something like that? And then it just kicks into this like, boom, 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 like buzzsaw, like, you know, just like huge affected vocals etc etc so yeah check that bad boy out you can listen to that as a little soundtrack to your workout your morning commute your spousal abuse whatever you're into no judgment auto erotic asphyxiation that's actually a pretty good one i think yep. this would be a good soundtrack for that good call um so yeah so industrial actions was put together by jeremy from seismic records He's been involved in the scene and releasing music for a long time on the label. It's it's not particularly active. I think he's got like 13 releases or something like that on it. Maybe it's 10. Um, it's He's just done a few select records over the years. But basically the idea for the festival started like 15 years ago. And he said to me when I was at the show on Friday, he's like, I've never put a show together and I went from zero to a hundred and just decided to do like a whole festival out of it. And he was briefly living in the Bay area before he moved back to Wisconsin with his family. And, um, I guess like the seeds really got planted and put into motion at that point. And I was asked, I guess it was like last fall. It was probably sometime between September and November. I think he asked me to play. And I was one of the last people added to the bill, which pretty much didn't change. But the the headliners were Iron Fist of the Sun, Control, and Brighter Death Now. And then there was a bunch of good acts that were from the area. And then uh, a lot of them from throughout the United States. And a bunch of whom whose material I didn't know super well. So it was really cool to me to be sort of on a bill that was largely just Power Electronics, which has its 
goods and bads. Um, but with bands I was a little less familiar with who I hadn't seen a bunch of times live. So I was super stoked to play. And I have another guy I do concrete mascara with, Andrew, who unfortunately wasn't able to make it. And um, originally I was set to open the second night, but due to unforeseen circumstances, uh, being a flight cancellation, Vitriol Gage, who was supposed to open the first night, couldn't make it until the second, so I got switched to the extreme, like, the night before to the opening the people's slot. People's heads exploded from the surprise. They were like, oh my god, we get to see Concrete Mascara now! No, no, not really. Um, you know, I was pretty nervous about the set because it's always a little difficult to do it on your own, and I didn't get very much time to rehearse um, for lack of time and also lack of space. So it was... I was excited, but also, like, with a slight apprehension. And so I just want to kind of run through sort of the acts of the festival, give kind of recommendations based on that, and also talk about just, like, the experience I had. So I'll try to keep it brief um, and not go on and on about personal details no one cares about. But that being said, I stayed with family friends in the area. They live in Piedmont, which is, like, the super rich section of the East Bay. I mean, it's all super rich, but it's exceptionally rich. Um... They have this gorgeous house. They have like a whole like side suite thing I was in that was, I've stayed there many times in the past. It's awesome. Um, they're fucking awesome people. So I spent Friday morning of the show at a lecture series put on by the Asian Art Museum Society in San Francisco. They had a lecturer out from Columbia University to talk about the history of Shinto architecture as it relates to Issei Shrine, which is... Um, a shrine that's hugely important and directly related to the royal family of Japan. And so I got like all this high culture, you know, very fancy. I, I was like the youngest person in the room by mm, 30 years at least um, thing to start my day. That was like totally fascinating because I'm Wearing into that kind of pants stuff. and a weird t-shirt. I was, although I did put on my sweater that my sister got me. Um, it was super disappointing because San Francisco and the East Bay are not particularly warm areas. They're generally pretty cool throughout the year, but it was like tops 50 degrees during the day and then 30 degrees at night. So it was almost no different than mm -hmm. being at home. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And, uh, happily I took the weather before I left, but that was sort of how I like started the trip, you know, being a, 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 a real High human being. Bitch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had like a nice lunch. We went and got Korean barbecue. It was good. I had, like, the most foul fucking farts, though, from, like, the airplane food plus Korean barbecue the day after. It was rough. Um, but the the venue itself was in, I guess it was East Oakland, and it was down on San, San, Le, San Leonardo uh, Street. I like the little bit of a spice you put on Because I kept wanting to call it San Leonardo, and it was, like, San Leandro. That's it. San Leandro, and it was at Ryan Jenks, a.k.a. Six's house slash venue that he owns, and so when I took my cab there, it was like I went from, like, up in the hills, lap of luxury, like, literally up in these just, like, twisty, windy hills, all the way down to East Oakland, where it was like, I was hoping to find scrap metal, maybe in the street around the area, and I'm like, right next to the highway overpass and like, you know, all these auto body shops and burned out lots and like the sort of kind of rough part of Oakland, um, where they haven't gentrified it yet. And it was just like, and it's a 10 minute drive. Like it's just a huge disparity. It's, it was, it was very interesting. And they get to the venue, which is, I didn't even know like somebody's house. That's like this big house. He's apparently lived there for 20 years. And the whole like first main floor is this giant, practice recording concert hall room kind of thing that's um you know maybe a little bit bigger than my apartment all put together if it was one big rectangle instead of one long one uh with like high ceilings and all the rest but it was just it was cool it was a cool spot there was a humongous pa system that was like you know six and well, i guess it was like seven and a half foot tall speakers that were like five feet wide um Although I'll touch on that a little bit later. But needless to say, it was a sweet spot for a show. And he's apparently been doing shows off and on for a long time of all sorts of different types. And, uh, you know, so I started to get to meet everybody and talk. And we, we did sound check. I got stuck with this 
relatively small and short table that was um, a problem because when I started my set at the beginning of the night, as soon as I bent over to turn my mixer on, my back gave out because I had to bend so oh, low. Oh, man. And then I was, yeah, I was in excruciating pain for the entirety of my set, like barely able to lift back up to like do my vocals, which then require a bunch of lower back and uh, diaphragm muscles, you know, for the screaming and such. A lot of a lot of lower back muscles and dick muscles. Oh, dude, it was it was fucking. I was like, just like I wanted to be done as soon as I started. <laughs> I was like, this is fucking awful. Um, but I want to give a shout out to some really good people from the weekend. So first, I met Doug and uh, Ben from Objection Ritual, who they're out at Erie, PA, which is outside of Pittsburgh, and they were just like really cool dudes. We had a really good time talking. We started, like, bullshit, and I just started, like, going off on a bunch of my stories that, well, you've heard a million times, mm -hmm. but they've never heard before, so I told them about... I ne No, I never got to tell them the Russian butt drug story, but, like, uh -huh. I told them the one about driving in the blizzard with, yeah. like, pissing, like, in bottles and the whole nightmare that followed and, and ensued, and we were just having a blast. We wound up spending, like, an an hour and a half before the show started just like standing in one spot chain smoking bullshitting like it was really it was really nice and then basically i went on with essentially no fanfare there were like i guess the the overall bill was um 16 artists played i think and between all the members of all those groups it was like 40 or 50 band members there and then they sold another 40 or 50 tickets so so it wasn't maybe as well attended as it could have been, but it was still for the, especially on Saturday for the size of the venue, it was, it felt crowded. It felt full. Um, when I looked up after basically throwing my back out, I was like, <laughs> oh, there's a lot of people here. And so my set went well enough, all things considered. I had to do this since pre-recorded and... Apparently you could kind of hear the metal, but I had like no monitors, um, so I couldn't hear hear it at all. And uh, halfway into my set, the left speakers started going out, and I didn't know if it was on my end or the mixer end. It wound up being the speakers in the mixer that was like running the whole PA system, but it was really threw me through a loop because there's nothing worse than having like stereo sound and yeah. then suddenly it turns to mono, and half the audience is like, "What the fuck?" So. I was, I listened to the recording after the fact and was pretty satisfied with the way it came together, but was disappointed generally with the fact that like I had to contend with those kinds of sound issues. And the guy whose house it was, Ryan, was like very nice and tried to be attentive, but was like also trying to spare his system from being completely destroyed by a bunch of guys who like are, they sound test at one maximum level. And then as soon as they start playing, they crank it twice as high. Yeah. So I get it, but it was fucking frustrating and by the end of the second day like all of the stage right speakers were clipping and the stage left speakers were cutting in and out so it was just like not an ideal situation um but you know it is what it is so after that the dudes from objection ritual played and that was a project i wasn't super familiar with their more recent stuff is like a full band kind of neurosis influenced death industrial meets um sludge metal kind of a thing that i've since checked out and i'm like what the fuck have i been doing i've been sitting on this um and they've just played like a really stripped down version of their sound dual vocal attacks at points like nice effects spooky vibes very controlled it was for me one of the highlights and unexpected highlights of the festival uh, and then there was Nod, who I've had really bad luck seeing. Um, the first time I saw him, he also does like a death industrial kind of a thing uh, and has a lot of like homemade equipment, mic apparatuses, has like a very like extra added level of performance to his stuff. And he's another U.S. artist. He's out of Minneapolis, I believe, originally. I don't, I don't know if he's still there. But the first time I tried to see him was at Maps Fest, and that was the show where... I didn't go on till 3.30 at fucking night, and I was just, like, dying to go home and was with yeah. a bunch of people, and, like, you know, we had been there for 12 hours. It was brutal, and he was playing as we were breaking down all our gear. I, I didn't get to enjoy it, and then this time, we went out to smoke, and then when his set started, we went to go inside, and somebody accidentally closed and locked the back door, so we were stuck in this oh, back no. patio 
which was, I didn't even mention, the back patio was extremely cool. It was 20 years of, like, scrap metal and um, big potted, like, cactuses, succulents, and all sorts of plants. So it was, like, this sort of vegetable, like, vegetation fallout rust yard thing that was, like, really a cool spot to hang out. But then we were, like, had to listen to half the set through the door. And then when I came in, it was so crowded that we couldn't see anything. But it sounded really good. There was a couple parts where the speaker would cut out and then cut back in, like, good timing. And then be, like, super loud and kind of startling. So that was awesome. I saw apparently afterwards that he apparently had a pig heart that was, like, in a... I guess, like, a glass jar that he took out and then put it in these racks that were in water. And then they had contact mics in the water and was doing all this, like spooky cool shit that it sounded good from outside the door <laughs> but i didn't see any of it um but was awesome i was really really glad to get like at least a slightly better version yeah. of that performance and then uh the following act was black scorpio underground who i was completely unfamiliar with and i missed all of their set because i was outside smoking and it they had like a drummer all i could hear was the occasional hit of a snare drum and then this like big wall of noise and apparently one of the dudes like pulled out a knife and just like cut the power, which killed all of the power inside. Yeah, like I don't. One of the dudes from the band, or yeah, that's fucked up. Yeah, I don't know if it was intentional. I think it was more like they just overloaded it when they cut their own power cords. But I don't know. It didn't really appeal to me, so I was just like, I'll just stay outside and continue bullshitting. Then I got to see Xiphoid Dementia, and it's a project of a dude from Massachusetts. It goes by the name Egan. I saw he was one of the organizers for the Northeast Power Electronics Festival in 2009. That was in Boston and Alston, which was a weekend of epic depravity for me and exceptionally fun. And the first time I got to see Stromy C live, which was a total disappointment because they were so fucking drunk they didn't plug in half their equipment. And, like, <laughs> just, it was... It, it was a, a weekend of incredible performances and they were like the big headliner and then it was just like, are you fucking kidding me? But he also, he played that festival and was pretty good, but the following weekend I got into this, it was a fucking nightmare getting to it and everything, but he played at Apex Fest along with Strami C who were still drunk but had their gear plugged in this time and was awesome. But he played and he does this like, basically, in a, in a sea of bands that were all this death industrial heavily affected vocals metal scraping slow soundtracky you know kind of like ooh, like dark and grim and whatever yeah. he has this like completely like wild and open experimental style that started with a lot of this like very electronic pulsing surging rhythmic like moving kind of shit and was like oh yeah like funky i'm like moving my butt and stuff <laughs> and then like got into this weird space of uh, clean vocals and like singing loudly. It was really loud. I wound up having to sit down through like half the set because my back was still fucking killing me. Um, and then went back into sort of more rhythmic territory and was very, was way more adventurous as far as sonic palette and like rhythm and, and drums and all that. Um, it was very cool. Control played afterwards and I was super hyped for Control. I've never seen him live like he basically plays, it feels like, just in Germany or Europe or not at all. Um, it was... The, the one thing I'll say, and this isn't a slight or anything like that, it's just the reality, but the dude has huge gauges, like the size of, like, teacup saucers. And he's had them for at least 10 years. Like, every picture I've ever seen of him since I got into this shit, he's had them. And every time he moved around, they just, like, flop around. <laughs> like, it's, it was pretty goofy. But he's got, like, slicked back hair and had this tight white, like, but uh, black uh, button-down shirt and very much, like, a, a very cool aesthetic. And it was exactly what I expected. It was just, like, huge surging sound. But it was... I was right up front for that. It was not nearly as loud as I thought. Like, I was imagining if I saw Control Live ever, like, it would just be, like, crushingly loud. Yeah. And I didn't really need my earplugs. Like, I was disappointed but he played um, Force It to End from World of Lies, which was like, I don't even know that many Control songs. Like, his style is 
so much of his albums are very similar in a lot of ways that I was shocked that I could pick a song out. And then I was shocked that it was like my favorite control song. So that was fucking awesome. And then he played Rain and Blood, which is from his newest album, to end it. And the set felt very short. It probably was every bit of half an hour because his songs are long. But I, it felt like he played three or four songs and that was it. And I was slightly disappointed by that. But it was really good. Um, and then the end of the night was Iron Fist of the Sun, who I also had seen previously in London at the last United Forces of Industrial Festival I went to. And is, again, a project that is um, has a very untypical sound as far as power electronics go. It's He's one of those artists that, like, it's hard to describe it as anything other than, like, sounding like lightning. It's this extremely, like, crisp electrical sound. He uses a lot of, like, circuit bent or digital signal processing to create, like, very bizarre sounding synths and right. very, like, weird, minimalist stuff but does his vocals through like a CB radio that are like super affected and give like lots of like back masked feedback after his stuff. Like it's like delayed, but then backwards and like all fucked up. And he played his like one hit song, which is called smile like sword. And the, the synth is just like super distinctive. And as soon as it started, everybody was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. And it was just like, when I saw him live the last time he was, I think ended the one night of the festival and it was awesome, but again, I was, like, super tired and just, uh, like, not able to enjoy it as much. Whereas, like, by this time I had rallied and was just, like, it was fucking excellent. It was it was so crisp. And he just announced the end of the project a week or two ago because of life stuff and whatever else. So this is, like, his one and only U.S. show. And then he's got two more in Britain and then it's over. So I felt really lucky to That's see awesome. that. Yeah, and... It was, I mean, the first night was, like, a ton of fun. I mean, both nights were. But I've, I talked to Lee a fair amount at the UFOI thing. And I felt really lucky because, like, you know, he sort of sought me out at one point. We got to talk for a while. Like, he's a really nice dude. He's older. He's got a wife, a kid who's, you know, she's, like, six or seven. And he doesn't have any, barely has any time for this kind of bullshit. And, like, he's just, like, a cool dude. And, um... I talked to some other people. I spent a lot more time Saturday talking to Roach and the guy from Swollen Organs named Jimmy. And Roach is his partner. They're both from New York. They were, like, really fucking cool people. We had a blast. We were talking about, like, the evils of technology and the sort of, on one side, wanting to be a sort of Ted Kaczynski character and the other side wanting to be, like, Major Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell <laughs> and, like, fully integrated and fully machine. And, um... I went, so before the festival on Saturday, I went over to Sam and, um, Sam from Terracell Unit slash Kufar and, um, Mike, who we did the interview with the crime scene cleanup guy, Striations. I went to their house in Oakland before the show. And so I got to hang out with them and Mac from Kufar as well. And we basically just like bullshit all day. And I watched them like, you know, hit a couple dabs and it's just like, this is different i've never seen never seen this before this so like, yeah. new fangled marijuana yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. it was a whole a whole thing and um we, it was just really nice like mike is a good dude for those who haven't heard that episode check it out like and if you don't, if you're into power electronics and you don't know striations get get to know it it's good shit uh but i was stoked because like i knew that terracell unit was doing something special for the fest and um you know, we went, we hung out all afternoon, and then we went over together. Mike and I went and got like, killer fucking burritos down the street that were bigger than your baby, like literally bigger than your fucking baby. They were humongous. I need this burrito. Yeah, um, vitriol gauged open that night, and sadly the the timing for everything was fucked up both nights. So like we started two and a half later than we were supposed to, two and a half hours later than we were supposed to Friday night. Like it got announced Friday day that the time got moved back significantly. But we were supposed to start at the same time Saturday night, and then they just started it early. So I'm out eating a burrito, and I come way, come back halfway through Vitriol Gage's set, which was really good. And was like, I thought they were sound checking. I'm outside smoking, and I come in, and like everybody's there. And I was like, what the fuck? So that was a little bit annoying, but it was good what I saw. Again, sort of more like straight power electronics in some ways, but he had like a spooky background video, and it was like, you know when did you turn septic and uh, asking some other rhetorical questions? I was like, Oh 
Yeah, spooky. <laughs> when did I turn seventeen? Yeah. Oh. Um. The the following act was one I was really interested to check out, and it was cool because it was so different. The one thing that this whole weekend lacked was like we needed like a good harsh noise act for each day to break up the monotony of like power electronics after power electronics, death industrial after death industrial. But the next one sort of did that. Compactor, he's uh he does like experimental. It's sort of like a little bit breakcore, a little bit like kind of weirdo techno. It's sort of uh, very much reminds me of um, Hyman slash Anson in its heyday. Uh, he wore a gas mask. It was like that kind of rivet head sort of a vibe yeah. a little bit. At one point he had a contact mic hooked up keyboard that he was like tapping furiously and then like affecting it. But he had like a joystick thing that was hooked up to like, you know, whatever um, effects and stuff that would like change the sound and then it was a lot of sampler based like big rhythmic stuff and then like and then modulating that live so like the rhythms would get all fucked up he'd like speed them up and slow them down and it was a lot of like more extreme electronic music and then at one point like he dropped into the it had all this like green code backing video very matrix very 1999 and then at one point he brought up this like scanner thing and was like scanning the audience while it was like all like spooky vibes and then it cut back into it it was like cheesy in a lot of ways, but it was cool too. Like yeah. I, I, I was impressed with his gumption of like sticking through with like a generally like oh very serious audience over like tough guys to like do this kind of very throwback sort of style that I feel like is probably still cool in Germany, but hasn't been cool in the U.S. in like ten or fifteen years, and even then wasn't like ever that cool. And it was good. It was. There were parts of it that went on too long for my liking, and some of the affecting was, like, less successful. But I would imagine his more composed, recorded compositions are probably really good. Right. I've bought a lot of stuff from the fest that I haven't had a chance to dip into yet. And then Terracell Unit came up, which was, like, I think for a lot of people, especially locals, was one of the biggest draws because... Kufar and Terracell Unit are complementary projects with the same two members with different focuses but similar sounds... Terracell Unit's just, like, the more ignorant approach in a lot of ways. Kufar is all about, like, Lebanese identity and a bunch of other stuff related to that. And Mac and his identity and his struggles as, like, a Arab, Lebanese, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that I can't do justice to. And if you're ever interested, like, talk to him. He's a really cool guy and very approachable. Just don't be a fucking dickhead. Terracell Unit's like, no. Their, their main song, their song on the compilation CD for the festival was called Death to Oakland. And <laughs> the shirt they sold said Death to Oakland on the back. And then they did that song live and were like, Death to Oakland. Did you buy one? Yeah. Nice. And um, I'm wearing it right now. Oh. Yeah, that's the shirt I have on. Their last LP is like, got all this stuff about the Oklahoma City bombing. It's got all the pictures of like the kids who died and on the back. It's, yeah, it's like super fucking ignorant, like, but awesome and... All these, like, heavily affected vocals and, like, super, like, rough synths and stuff like that. They were just, like, really fun. I missed the very beginning of the set because I got stuck outside. I was in the middle of a good conversation uh, with Lee from Iron Fist. But they were fucking great. Swollen Organs was next, which was more Death Industrial. It's a project that's got a pretty large amount of material out for, like, the, I guess, past, like, five to six to eight years maybe he's been active if it's been that long but i liked it there was the transitions were rough between the songs they're pretty abrupt sort of belayed like the kind of sampler oriented sort of approach uh and i feel like that could have been improved but and the vocals wound up being way too quiet but he screamed so loudly that even though i was like five people back from the front you could still hear it pretty clearly which might just be a testament to how quiet the PA was and fucked up at this point. But good shit. And like somebody I'm definitely going to be keeping my eye on as far as US power electronics type stuff goes. And then we have like an old school heavy hitter that's like a project I've never really gotten into and we'll probably do some exploration of called Murderous Vision who are one of like the oldest if not the oldest US death industrial project along with Subclinic. And they had... A guitar, like a bass guitarist and this really huge sound but they were very bass heavy and it was so bass heavy the speakers basically couldn't handle it it was very like much more dirgy and was good but i felt like 
definitely want to check out studio recordings. I didn't feel like the setting did them any favors. And then the other curveball, not such a curveball, but like sort of slightly different, was Bloodbox, who is one half of Yenpox, which is a super famous dark ambient group, and Bloodbox is famous in his own right. He had a like the high most hi-fi setup of everybody. It it was like a, he had his MacBook with this huge MIDI controller that was basically like this giant keyboard of squares that all had different lights and control things. It's like <coughs> these, all these MIDI triggers. It was very cool, very futuristic, like very top tier and was the cleanest sounding, like most high fidelity yeah. kind of group. Like it's really that like very good, fancy dark ambient. Um, but he combined it extremely well with the backing video, which was also of that same kind of style. A lot of... Um, uh, reflective type of like morphing video stuff where it's like there's the center line and then everything is uh, like reflected on the other side kind of like a, yeah like a like a mirrored roar shark melting sort of a thing um, that was really 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 good I wish uh, it could have been heard under better circumstances but it was still highly enjoyable mm -hmm. for me and then uh, there's a Philadelphia basically based band called Tomb that played who are they do like, it's basically, and maybe I'm wrong, and if I am and you guys hear this, correct me, but I, I, it's essentially like they do like kind of black magic rituals and occult shit like live. That's cool. Yeah, it was, it's it's very like a drone metal kind of a sound, like they use more traditional instruments with electronics, it has a lot of feelings of like sun in, in some ways, it's very like massive and monolithic. I wound up getting stuck in the back for the whole thing, so I couldn't see anything they were doing. There's like a hot chick who's involved and stuff, and it was it sounded really good, but it was just like I couldn't see fucking anything. So, and that was different too. That was cool. And then we had our headliner, who I will briefly touch upon the shit that happened before before I talk about it, and then then I'll wrap it up. But so, Brighter Death Now was like the biggest name of the whole festival. Uh, it's one of the longest-running projects, basically. They, they're from Sweden. Roger Karmanik, who runs Cold Meat Industry, it's his project. It's super famous. It's, like, one of the quintessential, like, originators of this whole death industrial sound. It's, like, him, Atrax Morgue, uh, the original Genocide Organ stuff. Sort of, like, set the template. And it shit's all, like, sex and degeneration and this, that, and the other. And I saw them in 2014 in Philly, and they were fucking great. And I'm not even a Brighter Death Now fan, really. Evan wears their shirt all the time, that circle emblem thing that's, like, a circle with, like, symbol in it that's mm -hmm. symmetric. They were... So they were so drunk on Friday night, the majority of them, that they slept on the couch outside for, like, half of the show. And they're famously drunk, like alcoholic, whatever, whatever. But when I saw them in, in Philly, they were pretty together. Like, it was a really raucous evening. And that was the night that uh, Andrew and Chelsea got kicked out of the venue because allegedly Chelsea bottled this other chick in the head, which didn't happen. But she did punch her in the back of the head because she was pissing her off. And I was just like... awesome if she bottled her, though. Yeah, I just stood aside and was like, I'm not getting kicked out for your guys' <laughs> bullshit. But I, we were all sort of like... I was talking with the dudes from Terracell and Mike from Striations, and I was like, you know, we were all like, yeah, this it feels like it's going to be disappointing this weekend. And Lena Babydoll, who does Deutsch Nepal, uh, is in the band, and he was, like, so fucking hammered. He basically slept through, like, 90% of the weekend, like, on the various couches and chairs and whatever. And it's like, if you can't be interested in this, like, why the fuck are you here? And I know that the organizer, like, you know, paid all their expenses to be out here, to fly out here, like... So all this money goes to this band who, like, couldn't give a fuck... And then by the time they went to play, we're so shithoused. It was just like a giant sloppy mess. And I was there for 15 minutes and I turned to Mac and was like, dude, this is, this is fucking stupid. And we just like stood outside for the next hour while they just went on and on and on. And halfway through the fucking set, Lena Babydoll, who's supposed to be up there playing, walks out, smokes a cigarette, passes out on the couch for half an hour, gets back up and then goes back in. And Jesus man. Christ. I was like, if you can't care enough to be in your own band, like, why the fuck should I be in there listening to this when we could have had anybody else who would have given a shit? So it was, it was kind of a downer note, but it was also, like, so fucking absurd that at least it was a source of amusement to a point, but it was, like, really annoying that, you know, these big deal legends and big ticket, you know, sale draw are, like, 
this is this is the quality that we get for that. So, you know, needless to say, it was a really fun weekend. Um, you know, there were some scheduling problems, as there often are with festivals, but like on the whole, it was pretty well run, and we had a really good time. Jeremy really looked out for everybody and tried to make sure everybody was having a good time and had their needs met. It was easy for me. I took Ubers to and from at night, and you know, it was it was good. So. You know, I would really recommend pretty much any of the bands that played. Like, there wasn't anything I thought was super weak other than Brighter Death Now um, and Black Scorpio Underground. But, you know, who knows? Their recorded material might be really interesting. But for those who don't know Iron Fist of the Sun, check it out now before all that shit disappears now that it's quitting. And Swollen Organs, watch out for. Terror Cell Unit is hot shit right now. Everybody knows to check them out. And Abjection Ritual is, like, totally going to be the next thing i think i'm going to dig deep into so nice so yeah so that that's my sort of uh live box recommendation yeah uh hope you guys enjoyed it tonight and as always you know rate and review on itunes if you can you can contact us at motel hell we're back baby we're back at gmail.com you can check us out at instagram at the same facebook etc we're here we're, we're queer ready to to ride on top of steer that was, so. That's now our sign-off. Remember yeah. that. I can't. You have to. Okay. Or you're off the podcast. Fair enough. Later, nerds. Later.